Hey everyone, this is Diz from Out on an Island podcast. We'd like to take this time to issue a formal trigger warning as this episode contains stories and discussions on rape, sexual abuse, and sex trafficking. If you're at all affected by this subject matter, you may want to skip this episode. Thanks for listening. All right. Hello, everybody. Out on an island. I'm not sure what episode this is going to (laughs) be. Yeah, this is going to be a part of our interview series. This is the second interview that we've done. We're very excited to talk today with Amy Merrill, the executive director of the Cupcake Girls. Yeah, I don't know. Let's just jump right in, I guess. Hi, my name is Amy. She, her nice to be here thanks so much for having me yeah thank you thank you thank you for taking the time and you know i mean just for everything that you do and your organization does how how's everything going right now oh i mean it's pretty good i think that you know the the work is intense and it's hard and important and so it's it's good work and it's hard work It, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of emotional energy and physical energy so just making sure to, to take time to take care of ourselves as we're caring for others and the needs of others is pretty front of mind for all of us, that's for sure. But the work's important and it's valuable and it's worth it. I guess as we're talking about that, do you want to explain to us a little bit about the Cupcake Girls and how that organization got started and exactly what it is that you guys do? Yeah, so the Cupcake Girls are in the prevention and aftercare of sex trafficking. That means that we work with folks who are consensually in sex work, so people are choosing to do this work. It's their job. We believe at the Cupcake Girls that sex work is work and it is something that folks can and do choose to do every single day. And it also means that we work with folks who are not choosing this work, folks who are being coerced into sex work, manipulated into sex work, or trapped into sex work, in other words, being sex trafficked. The way that we work with those folks is we partner with professionals all around the United States, and we ask them if they would consider giving their services to us at a discounted or pro bono rate. And so we will talk with people like dentists, doctors, lawyers, auto mechanics, daycare providers, you name it, we're talking to them. And we say, hey, would you give us a discount on your services or give them to us for free? And this is why. And when folks say yes, and we have vetted them to be uh, sex worker friendly and safe, then we add them to our list of partners. And we have over um, 200 partners all throughout the United States that have partnered with us. So we're able to do things like uh, for one of our clients, give her free root canals the other week. And another one of our clients, get them into um, an inpatient program. Another one of our clients uh, that is working through the process of being reunified with her children, doing record expungements, lots of lots of amazing, amazing things. But the thing is that the way that we work is through this self-determination and self-empowerment model. So our clients, when they're coming into our program, we're not saying like, all right, now it's time for you to do these 12 things. Um, but we're saying, what do you want? And a lot of the times the clients will sit there and um, it'll take a few sessions for them to come back and say, okay, I want to figure out how to get my kids back, or I I need a washing machine, or I need to get my record expunged. Um, And so whatever it is, we'll sit down with our client and we work through SMART goals, um, which is an acronym essentially to create specific, measurable, attainable, time-based goals. And as we work through those goals with the client, we'll sit down and we figure out, okay, it looks like you can get this achieved in three months. Does that sound good to you? Do you want to adjust this? But the client is always in the driver's seat. We're always pushing towards self-determination, self-empowerment, not us making decisions, which can feel really scary sometimes Mm -hmm. because they're like, 
well, I have this massive issue. Can you just solve it for me? But what we're actually doing is giving people an opportunity to step back into um, creating, yeah, access to achieving their goals and their timing. And it's a really beautiful process. And we do it all with no judgment. So we're not ever telling anybody to get out of the industry. We're not ever pushing anybody into the industry. We're just here for folks. And so some folks will come to us and um, it seems obvious to us that they're in a trafficking situation and it's not for us to work to get that person out of the situation. It's up to the client to decide when they want to leave and if they want to leave. Um, And what a lot of folks don't understand is that the rate of folks returning to their trafficker, it's just as high as people returning to their domestic violence abuser. And so a lot of the times even when somebody leaves their trafficker, they end up returning uh, multiple times. In domestic violence, the statistic is seven times that it takes somebody to leave where they die. And it's about the same um, that we're seeing for sex trafficking survivors as well. That's insane. That's insane. Yeah. I was going to ask that because um, I'm a former, you know, person in a, a domestic intimate partner a violence abuse situation and so like um you know and you hear that number and you think it's so high and like why don't people leave sooner and it's because it's because of a lot of reasons like one it's really scary like you were saying especially like oh now you have to make all these decisions on your own and try to figure out what comes next and and i mean it's good that your support you're not on your own but the other thing is like it's it's threat like you get threatened you know um or you know you get bribed (laughs) to come back so yeah it's it feels like a high number but when you're living in it, it's not really a high number. It makes a lot of sense. I'm just sorry to hear that it's the same time that you go back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I've never been in an abusive relationship like that. And so like, from my perspective, it does sound really high. And I guess that is like where that stigma comes from of like, you know, if you never experienced the situation, why it's so easy for people to cast judgment on that, you know what I mean? And be like, oh, you're, you just keep going back. Like, but I mean, it's, it's like an addiction, like anything else though. Right. Like (laughs) how many times have I gone back to, you know, smoking cigarettes, knowing that that's killing me, you know, (laughs) it's just, everybody falls into a comfortable situation. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're totally fine. It's also self-preservation, right? So the majority Mm -hmm. of cases that we see in trafficking, it's actually generational trafficking. So people are being trafficked by their aunties, by their uncles, grandpas, dads, moms. So the majority of trafficking in the United States is actually generational trafficking. And that's something that's talked about because it's not something that people want to talk about for some reason. And so can you imagine growing up in an experience and then having to remove yourself from that? Just how how much of just like a mind jarring experience that is to just really reinvent yourself. I mean, even thinking about leaving the home, even if you have a healthy family situation, right? Just mm-hmm. like how hard that is. But when you're leaving your entire lifestyle, your entire growing up experience for the hope of something better, knowing that it might not be better, right? Because you have no money, no family help, no community. You're losing oh. everything. You're leaving everything. And the other thing with trafficking situations is, it's also the same when people are thinking about leaving their husband, 
who might be their trafficker, their mm-hmm. wife who might be their trafficker, their girlfriend who might be their trafficker, boyfriend who might be their trafficker. And then we see a lot of non-binary folks that are being trafficked as well. Um, trafficking is pretty high in the LGBTQ community as well. And so wow. just really thinking about thinking about just how jarring that would be to just love someone. Just mm-hmm. to love someone. And it starts off so small. Um, maybe it's just a little bit of financial control. Maybe it's them saying, I don't really like that friend that you have. And so it, this um, kind of like mind mess, it, it starts off so small and then it just gradually builds up. So again, you have an entire community with this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people have lived with their trafficker for decades. And, and so the idea of leaving is so much scarier than the idea of staying and, and having this idea of, yeah, this, this stigma that's attached to it truly it has to do with bodily autonomy and the stigma that we have on that in the United States, I think for sure. Yeah. Um, but, but globally it's an issue of how we look at the ideas of power and control and how we glorify this idea of power and control. Right. And it can mm-hmm. be confusing to us when, when folks aren't able to attain that personal power and it's like, well, with what, with what tools do you expect me to do this? Right. It's not a fair stigma. That's for sure. We discussed in a prior episode, we were talking about like, you know, gender roles and things like that. And we've like brought up a point where we were saying that, you know, through the patriarchy and like just through the values that are instilled in the world and like the ones that we live in every single day, it's so much more comfortable for women or even just the more feminine side of the relationship. We've become so comfortable in feeling uncomfortable that it's easier for us to just keep living that way than it is to feel imagine feeling uncomfortable in any other way and so just to be comfortable and angry or comfortable and scared instead of just being comfortable and blank right 100 percent. i think that that's super valid so, so we totally jumped right into the cupcake girls but we haven't <laughs> talked at all about you so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and just about yourself and then how you got into this work um about myself i like long walks on the beach literally Uh, (laughs) the the beach is like my happy place I'm always trying to go to the coast or the beach I have a dog who you can hear barking in the background and she's kind of my joy I love being outside like at any point that I can I just need to be outside it's really it fills me up and it makes me feel grounded and if you've never tried it, if you're feeling any sort of anxiety or depression, taking off your shoes and just standing barefoot in the ground is like the best thing for your body. Um, I like doing that. Love hiking. Yeah. And I am a single mama. I'm a domestic violence survivor and I'm raising an amazing daughter who honestly teaches me so much about just like living life and letting go and being free. I love her a lot. And then with how I got into this work. So when I was growing up, I was actually raised in a household with a dad who's a retired major in the army now. He was a church planner growing up. And my mom, my mom was really dedicated along with him to us giving back to any community that we were living in. And so they would always have us donating our time. Us kids were always volunteering somewhere growing up. But I was also homeschooled all throughout school. So kind of like kept away from like secularism, which was like a term that was pretty (laughs) heard a lot. And when I was 16 years old, I was working at a local bookstore with a girl and she let me know that A, she was involved in sex work and B, that she was being sexually assaulted by two police officers in her town. 
And I was like, well, let's go to the police department. Like, they're going to help. The police department will help us. And she said, uh, okay, let's, you know, go to the police department, see what they can do. And we went and we filled out a form and nothing happened. And then she went back and she went back time and time again to try and get help. And so my friend ended up going on her own and really reaching out into the community and trying to find other people that were all also facing the same situations that she was facing. And it ended up being over a dozen women came forward, both consensual sex workers as well as folks who had been sex trafficked, saying that they had been assaulted by the same two police officers. Jeez. And um, she ended up um, going to court. You know, they were prosecuted. The city apologized, all of this stuff. But uh, it took a lot. It took a lot of work for her to be heard. Um, and it really put front and center for me the issue of othering and the stigma that it was attached to sex work and the issues with that stigma. And then as I was older, I started volunteering in different, like I was saying, domestic violence shelters, but also with sex trafficking survivors. And I really saw in a lot of the anti-trafficking realm, this intense stigma that was put on sex workers, which was interesting to me because sex workers are our greatest allies in fighting sex trafficking, actually. And so that was super confusing. And when I went to be a flight attendant later on, also saw sex trafficking on the planes. And it wasn't until um, 2009 that when I moved to Portland, Oregon, that I saw a woman who was being abused on the street in, in Portland. And I called the police and they said, well, I was laughed at by a security guard that, uh, that I asked first to call the police. Um, and he was like, she's a prostitute. They're just going to arrest her anyway. And so I had to go get a cell phone because in 2009, you didn't really carry around cell phones and call the police myself. And when I did, they came. But by the time they came, she was already gone. And the officers, I asked him, I was like, so is this true? Would you, would have you would have arrested this person that was being abused. And they said, well, if it's who the security guards is saying it is, then yes, like she has a pretty lengthy record. And I was like, knowing nothing about the police department, I was like, I want to talk to your manager. And I ended up <laughs> talking to like multiple people's managers um, until I was sitting across the way two weeks later from the police chief at the time. And I was like, well, what do I do? How can we help? And she said, look, if you want to make any sorts, any sorts of real change in your community, you need to get involved with changing legislation and you need to get involved with grassroots nonprofits. So I've dedicated my life to doing both and partnered with the Cupcake Girls a year after they had started as a nonprofit, but three months after they had started as a nonprofit in our city. So Cupcake Girls had started in February of 2011 in Nevada. Um, and then I started in February of 2012 in Portland. So because of a client that was working with Cupcake Girls in Nevada, um, moving to Portland, Oregon, Cupcake Girls was started in Portland, Oregon. That client was just saying like, we need Cupcake Girls here. We have to get Cupcake Girls here. And then we ended up starting here in Portland, Oregon in 2011. And then, yeah, so I was working like as a full-time volunteer for a lot of the time, probably my first four years. I was just doing 40 hours a week working with Cupcake Girls, volunteering as much time as they needed. And the idea of no strings of being attached to the services that were being provided, the idea of elevating sex workers was really important to me. And I loved that that's what they were doing. And then 
yeah, this idea of educating the community while we are allowing the participants in our programs to access resources was important to me too. Mm -hmm. So I moved into the city director position in Portland back in 2014. And then last year took over as executive director of the entirety of the organization. Wow, that's amazing. And you guys are full 501c3 status? Yep. That's All incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's been a lot of work to get it up and going. And honestly, I think it's really beautiful to be able to be a part of something from the very beginning like that, because you're able to really see the amount of work that has to go into building up nonprofits and getting them to work. And it's a ton of like work. And honestly, it's a lot of work on making sure that as you're building something, you're building it equitably mm -hmm. um, and building it with the right foundation. And that's been something that we've been really focusing in on over the last year, especially um, since I took over the role is really looking at, okay, what were the things that we built that maybe weren't as equitable as they should have been? What are the ways that we can make things more accessible and we can have less barrier to care for our clients? Like we changed up our grant, our grant application process because we give out financial grants and there was a lengthy application process. And we were like, well, what does the IRS absolutely need in order mm -hmm. for people to be able to receive a grant? And it was answering three questions. What's the hardship? What's a contact information for you? And then what's a name? It doesn't even have to be a legal name. So we were like, cool, let's do that. And I think that, I think that by nonprofits working to be more equitable, then we're really looking at, honestly, the ways that the nonprofit industrial complex keeps people in spaces of oppression and changing the lens of the harm that nonprofits cause, taking away the nonprofits often take away the, yeah, self-determination and self-empowerment of, yeah, agency of the folks that are in their programs. And so I think it's important that we're, constantly looking at, okay, yes, like as nonprofits, what is the, what's the harm that we're causing? I was looking at some 990s. And if you don't know what that is, Google it, but it's essentially like a report card that the government has nonprofits fill out once a, once a year. And I was looking at some 990s and you can see how much executive directors make. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then you can call that nonprofit and you can see how much their lowest paid person makes. And a lot of them are paying their lowest paid person minimum wage. And a lot of the executive directors are making six figures and yeah. so how is that equitable? How, how are you not perpetuating harm on the communities that you're intending to serve? I mean, it's just a freaking joke, but. Yeah, I anyway. actually am a grant writer uh, by profession. Wow. I, yeah, I own my own business out here, just a sole proprietorship, but uh, doing grant writing services. And I work with a few people out here in the nonprofit sector, but I've mentioned a lot, especially in past episodes, that there's definitely this underbelly to nonprofit work because in a capitalist society, nonprofit doesn't actually exist, <laughs> you know? And so, like, it is just this big chain of, like, I guess, like, the road to hell is paved with good intentions is a good adage to fit what the nonprofit world is. I work a lot in, like, agriculture and, like, hot ticket things like food system security, you know, things like that. Um, all of those things sound really amazing, especially like in Hawaii, we talk a lot about ecotourism and agrotourism, but, you know, what do they actually mean when you peel back the label just a little bit? Not a lot, <laughs> you know? 
And so I I understand what you're saying, like 100% about just like how nonprofits can be so harmful. A lot of the time they feel like laundering businesses. One million. I could not agree more. I think that that's been something that I've, my team is probably so sick of me talking about it. That's something I've been harping on for a while is just, are we okay with the work that we're doing? Why? And how can we make it more accessible? What are Mm. the things that we're doing that are not equitable? And how do we need to change those things? And so really digging deep and pulling apart every single process. What are the things that we're building to make sure that we have a job forever? Why are we not working ourselves out of a job? What are the ways that we can ensure that we are working ourselves out of a job? Who are the nonprofits that we're partnered with? And are we okay with those partnerships? Are they actually harming the communities surrounding us? Yeah, sure. Why are we okay with partnering with a nonprofit that is making their executive director is making more than two and a half times their lowest paid person. Why are they okay with that? What is the like ethos behind that? And especially when you look into the statistics of the people that are working in nonprofits, most of the time are survivors themselves. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking at the harm that nonprofits are causing those survivors. And I think the other piece is most of the people leading nonprofits are not survivors. Um, yeah. So. That's a super important Part. So I also was a consensual sex worker um, in Vegas, and I found the organization, we do shout outs, and I looked at like, I was looking for a good punk rock organization that had connections to Vegas, and I found the Cupcake Girls through that, and I was wondering if you ever considered the work you do like punk rock or like radical in any way, because this, especially questioning power structures and dynamics like in your own agency like really questioning what is my privilege what is my role how can we you know redistribute power and equity so that people are in charge of their own lives and their own communities are managing like their own you know not issues but like yeah they're they're participating in this process so that's it's kind of funny actually that that's like a thing because so I can, like, I am obsessed, like, with punk rock. So Kathleen Hanna is definitely one of my, I guess, like, mentors without me ever meeting her, which if you're listening, Kathleen Hanna, call me up. I'll give you, I'll put my phone number, you know, <laughs> my phone number in the, <laughs> in the comments or something. But yeah, I mean, like, Toby Vale, Kathleen Hanna, Bikini Kill, like, really changed how people were thinking about women and how people were being able to accept women and and it changed it for some people right some people have been thinking about that for quite some time mm-hmm. I mean we're looking at Marsha P Johnson who of course did some amazing work but the, but the things that even with Marsha P Johnson was that the mental health piece of women that are experiencing mental health issues that just was never really something that people are thinking is cute to talk about for some reason but yeah I think the work that Cupcake Girls is doing is the most punk rock or whatever thing that that they could that we could be doing it's challenging it's challenging what is okay and why it's okay it's it's abolitionist work it truly is it's flipping tables and turning them around and re you know breaking tables rebuilding them whatever it is that you want to say but but that needs to be the work that we need to be doing if we're actually wanting to see something different we can't just keep giving people tools if we're not changing the ground the frame the foundation in which we're all living in. Cause I just see people, they're like, try this tool or like, 
you know, buy this thing and, and then you'll be safe or you'll be different. It's like, what are you even talking about? Yeah. We need to completely restructure the world that we're living in. And we need to be brave enough to talk about it and do that. And I think that, you know, that's essentially like that abrasive, like hardcore punk rock. I think that that really influenced that kind of thought pattern. So how did you get into like punk rock music and like that scene? Is that like a young angsty teenage thing? Is that like a, cause you, you mentioned that you had grown up in like a church family, right? <laughs> so yeah. So I wasn't allowed to listen to anything secular, which like is pretty much like the, the word is like anything Christian. Uh, I could listen to anything that wasn't, I couldn't. And so I remember like my brother actually is very into music and would be in all these different bands. I have five younger brothers would be in all these different bands and um i was the only one who could drive and then the house besides my parents and so i would end up driving him to his shows and i just very close to them and so he would listen to different music and then i would listen to that music so he was really into i don't know if you know about four years strong okay so if you you have to listen to four years strong okay right on um uh, they're they are a um pacific northwest band and just amazing but it was branching off of that that i really started listening to the radio in my, my room, like at the lowest volume. And I'd have my ear up to the radio in my room and listening to like the punk rock station, which is how I heard about Bikini Kill and like Kathleen Hanna. And um, I'm a drummer. Like I love drummers. Amazing. You're a precious commodity. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I've been like obsessed with Toby Vale. I was like, oh my gosh, like she's so cool. I just want to be your friend. But it was really just like, me looking for somewhere that I belonged because I didn't feel like I belonged in the space that I was living in and the space that I was. And I think that that's a lot of things with the punk rock scene, right? It's just folks looking for belonging and not feeling like they do belong because the world that's been set up for us, it, it's hurting us. I think it's a really common misconception in the punk rock scene that kids who get into that scene are running away from something. Uh, I think that it's much, much more accurate to say that those kids are running towards something yeah. and, you know, finding that sense of community, that sense of camaraderie, those kinds of things that punk rock like provides for people uh, is just something that you don't find in an everyday subculture and it's uh, that's why it's always been really valuable to me and to alicia i'm sure yeah <laughs> it brings in that sense of belonging yeah i like that running towards something i like that yeah and so how did your punk rock like how did belonging to the punk rock community like shape your professional and work ethos, especially because you got involved with this work like so early? I think it's amazing that you found a cause and really did figure out like, okay, this is what I, I want to give to this. This is how I can contribute. And like, you've literally actually been doing that since a teenager. And that's just amazing. I do think that music has always been really important to me and you know, as somebody, I, I have a panic disorder. I struggle with really deep-seated depression. And I was just really looking for, like like we were saying, that belonging piece. And I think that this idea of liberation, this idea of equality, of changing things and um, seeing things differently, I think that the music helped me feel heard. But I think that those feelings I was born with Mm -hmm. I think that those were like inside of me already. I think that they just wanted to 
find a place where they fit in. And, and it, I was able to put words to the things that I was feeling when I was in those communities with the other folks that were asking the same really hard questions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a society, we all get pretty comfortable doing the easiest thing that we can in order to just get by. But we only get this one beautiful life and like this, like this is all we have. Mm-hmm. Like, and so using the time and the bodies that we have to make sure that other folks have a greater sense of equality is important to me. But my like, I don't know, like my four words that I use a lot are justice, equality, love and liberation. Those are like, that's it for me. Like, that's it. If we're not working towards justice, towards equality, towards actual love for one another and liberation for the folks that are really needing it, mm-hmm. including ourselves, I think we're missing the mark. But I think punk rock music really put emotions and words into things that were already inside of me mm-hmm. that people were telling me weren't real or weren't mm-hmm. um, capable or yeah, it didn't exist, which is also why I'm really into sci-fi. <laughs> There's this really amazing lyric from the band Streetlight Manifesto that always stuck with me when I think about punk rock. And it says, I don't know much, but I do know this. With a golden heart comes a rebel fist. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really, really great way to describe the people who kind of feel more like punk rock found them than they did yeah. it. Because I think you are born a particular kind of person for this culture to appeal to you you know yeah and the idea of like the golden heart and the rebel fist is just such a beautiful way to explain that you know yeah i love that too and it's interesting too like when you're being raised around different marginalized communities like i said i mean my parents were very invested in us volunteering from a very young age which i take with me and i appreciate that a lot Mm -hmm. obviously it's led me to where i am and I do the same with my daughter. Um, But I think being around marginalized communities like that and being able to acknowledge the types of privileges that you have is super important. And that I don't think that you can truly be in the punk rock culture unless you've at some level done some work or you're beginning to, or maybe that fire is just being lit up inside of you because... Mm -hmm. Unless you're just going for like, I don't know, narcissism, I guess, where you're just like, I'm the best. And like, yeah, everybody else is the worst, which is like, that's another issue within every scene, but definitely in the punk rock scene. Yeah. Right? But if you're truly punk rock, like if you're truly like looking for that abolitionist attitude, the liberation attitude, the like, you know, pretty much screw everything. Like we want equality. Like we want difference. We want justice. Mm hmm. I think that you're really doing some deep work in yourself and finding that community of other people that are also doing that is not only important, it's imperative for us as humans. Sure. As as we're building and growing. Yeah, yeah. I think the lyric that like built my entire ethos growing up was it's not enough to be a punk, you have to be a human being, you know? Mm-hmm. And that holds really deeply with me like it's the entire reason why i moved into like the area of work that i moved into in like the nonprofit world and i am trying to get further into at this point too because i work with like a lot of agriculture and stuff like that right now which is great but it's really really inspiring to watch you know somebody like you who's doing this really 
important work, you know, not that agriculture is an important work, but it just yeah. feels a little bit more like, you know, you're really fighting for something very important. I mean, especially right now with the state of the world and Roe v. Wade being overturned and all that chaos surrounding it. Yeah. How do you think that that's going to impact your work? Oh, As- massively. Are you guys already kind of feeling some some like quakes of like what that's going to be like? Hasn't have laws or anything like that started to kind of get complicated to work around or navigate? I mean, absolutely. When if and when somebody is needing, you know, an abortion, they need that abortion. It's not a question. It shouldn't be a question. And I think that like Honestly, people haven't been listening to sex workers when sex workers have been elevating this issue for a very long time, which is so infuriating to me that bodily autonomy is under attack. We need to decriminalize sex work. That needs to be a focus as a community that we decriminalize sex work, that we put on the forefront saying like bodily autonomy is important. And when we're not doing that, it's even bigger than the idea of, you know, shit, people can't get abortions now. Mm -hmm. And that's an issue is this idea of, do we actually own our own bodies? Are we actually just like, you know, another piece to the capitalistic puzzle of making sure that other folks can stay in positions of power? Mm-hmm. Are, are we actually important as individuals? And if not, why are we okay with that? And why are we not pushing forward? And the question shouldn't be like, oh, like, what about Roe v. Wade? The question should be like, what are we okay with and what have we been okay with and why are we not screaming? Yeah, sure. I I had the discuss. I was in Mexico the day that Roe v. Wade got overturned and, you know, there was a lot of outrage and obviously a lot of melancholy uh, surrounding returning to the country the following day. And I think like the biggest thing that kept going through my mind, the fact, the sheer fact that like my uterus is a caveat on my existence, right? Like I am free to exist except, (laughs) except this one thing that like is a thing that I can't change that I didn't ask for that, you know what I mean? And like, just feeling like somebody's grubby fingers are reaching into like my existence is horrifying, you know? And we're very fortunate. We live in a very liberal state and Hawaii is probably going to be the last state that would ever accept that. But it doesn't mean that, you know, that's not a reflection of the world that we're living in and like that's a problem like just because i'm safe doesn't make women safe and that should be the issue i'm concerned about right <laughs> like i have a friend i have a phd and in my doctoral program one of the people did her dissertation on covert sex trafficking networks and so they you know, she adapted an algorithm someone at our school created in order to, you know, triangulate a network across states of sex trafficking and sex traffickers. And I was just wondering, because that is something that never really, like, dawned on me that people move around with their traffickers, you know, so much. And I was wondering how access to abortion then is going to, like, impact this kind of movement or like do you see the movement is uh, is there a common movement between vegas and portland or yeah you know okay yeah sorry i didn't mean to laugh (laughs) just just like i'm not laughing at you i'm just laughing at like the ridiculousness that is like how people just 
not you, but just like the society in general just doesn't even understand trafficking. Yeah. And I just got into it with this, this lady because Portland Police Department in Oregon, they've been arresting consensual sex workers with their human trafficking division. I think it was like 88% of the arrests since they created the division have been consensual sex workers. And it's like, why are we putting literally a billion dollars into this? Like, Anyway, yeah, they they get moved around a lot. Folks Mm -hmm. are moving around with their traffickers a lot. It is going to impact abortion. But I think that the thing is, it's going to impact the safety of folks who are being trafficked. The people who are being trafficked at the highest rates are indigenous women and black women. And it's going to put them into more spaces where they're even in more dangerous spaces. Because if the trafficker wants you to have an abortion, you'll have an abortion. Um, But it just won't be as safe. And so I think that that's something that, you know, one of the many things that just was not thought about, right, when people were making the laws that they were was how things are going to be impacting women and not just women, but anyone who can get pregnant. And yeah, the the amount of people that are going to be dying um, due to limited access of abortion, it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. The adage that there's no such thing as banning abortions, there's only such thing as banning safe abortions, uh, is so horrifying, you know? I mean, and it, it seems so obvious to anybody who just, like, really thinks about it, but, like, it's insane to live in a country where, like, half of this country is just completely blind to that idea, you know? Just thinking that if we, the idea that if we just ban abortion, then, like, we're a more godly country or a more you know what i mean like this like very like ridiculous and like blind kind of perspective that we have especially after like it's 2022 like we lived through generations of you know oppression and abuse of women and like we we saw the wire hangers you know like we saw all of these things and like we're still just so willing to turn a blind eye to this and just say like you know this religious like this antiquated religious philosophy is more valuable than you know x y and z or like whatever weird philosophy that you have for feeling like you need to control that situation or police that situation is (laughs) mind-blowing yeah i think it has even less to do with religion and more to do with power and control and capitalism Mm -hmm. honestly yeah i think that uh i think honestly if we pull away from attacking one another and just really get to the root issues, which are racism, capitalism, patriarchy. I just think that like, then we're going to be able to have some real conversations because it's not just, you know, folks in the right, you know, the right wing saying like, oh, this is how it should be. It's also all of the things that were built upon that decision being made. Yeah, Um, sure. And so us being able to have honest conversations about bodily autonomy are very important in order for people who can get pregnant to be safe. Sure. So what does, like, I know that this is kind of a hard question to answer, but like, as we, the big tagline for this show is that we talk about like punk rock philosophy and you know like action in an evolving world and so like what does the future of your work look like for you like what are what are the ideals you're working towards right now just from like this platform where you're standing i think that the main focus that we have on my team is to work ourselves out of a job and that's something we talk about a lot is how can we not exist anymore 
And one of the ways that I think that we can work to not exist anymore is by decriminalizing sex work. And so that is going to be a focus of ours. We need to make sure that folks are not arrested for work that they're doing, for labor that they're doing, and deciding to do consensually. I also think that we're going to be able to figure out and point out victims that are being trafficked so much more easily because sex workers are our biggest allies in fighting trafficking. I also think it's horrific that in many states, Nevada being one of them, sex trafficking survivors are arrested. They're booked. Mm. It's a mess. A lot of survivors that we talk to, actually the majority of them say that their arrest was more traumatic for them than their trafficking experience. And so I think that us really looking at the WHO, the World Health Organization, Mm -hmm. um, and their recommendation of decriminalization, including uh, the ACLU, Amnesty International, a host of other really important um, organizations, John Hopkins University, who have been saying the data is clear, um, Mm -hmm. decriminalizing sex work would change the landscape and, and make things safer for folks. I think that that is a big focus of our organization. And so the organizations that we support are really important to us, people that we're working with that they do vote for and think about and with their money internally and their nonprofits, as well as the way that they talk in the community towards bodily autonomy. Yeah. Amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> I uh, 100% agree. There's this whole, I don't know, there's the, so I always looked at like decriminalizing sex work as, as a feminist issue, you know, so it really was a surprise to me that some feminists are like anti decriminalization. Yeah. yeah. And I know that you've gotten more involved in like community outreach or the Cupcake Girls has. I met well, I fangirled. <laughs> I fangirled when I saw you all at Kinkfest. And I was just wondering, like, <laughs> if you'll be anywhere else soon or, you know, where can people find you? Do you have events coming up or like different partnerships or anything? Yeah. So the primary place you can find us is on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Our tag is Cupcake Girls Org. Or you can go to our website, www.thecupcakegirls.org not.com.org. So please make sure to look us up also while you're at it. Please, please, please. In order to continue doing this very important work, we need monthly donors. And so everybody signing up to be a monthly donor is extremely important to us. It's very vital to our mission and our growth. We are going to be at Kinkfest next year. We're also going to be at AVN, um, which I'm really excited about. So we're going to have a relaxation suite and we're partnering with Pineapple Support in order to make that happen. And Pineapple Support will be providing absolutely free counseling, which is a dream of mine to have free counseling for all sex workers and sex trafficking survivors. And we're excited to be able to partner with Pineapple Support to make sure that that happens at AVN. We're also about to head into our largest fundraiser of the year in September. And we're looking for people to fundraise with us. It's our peer-to-peer fundraiser called Change Takes Action where we bring together a hundred or more fundraisers and people are raising anywhere from 500 bucks to I'll be raising $15,000 all to support the mission and vision of the cupcake girl. So we can continue doing the vital and important work that keeps folks safe. And so we're excited to support the participants in our programs in that way. And so anybody that wants to join my fundraising team, my daughter and I are still looking for 10 people. She just made some Instagram videos last night, (laughs) which were pretty cute. Um, But we're looking for 10 people to join our team. And our whole team is uh, org-wide. We're looking to raise $300,000 for the Cupcake Girls. And we were able to 
smash that goal last year. So we're excited to smash that goal this year. So those are some ways you can get involved. And definitely always reach out to me personally if you just want to chat or if you have questions and you can just DM uh, cupcakegirls.org and they will send you directly to me and be happy to chat with you. Awesome. And then you mentioned... You mentioned Four Years Strong. I was wondering if you have a song from them that you'd like to recommend our leader. Um, so we have a, uh, a playlist too, and I'd like to put it on the playlist, whatever your favorite song is. Yep. Here, wait one second. Okay. The song is Heroes Get Remembered, Legends Never Die, and it's by Four Years Strong. And one of my favorite lyrics from that song is, Sad enough to say, but alone, I could never light a match, but together we can burn this place down. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> I feel like that might be the title of this episode. <laughs> that will probably be the titular lyrics for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and just before we let you go, do you have any other organizations that you'd like to shout out? Absolutely. Call to Safety is doing amazing work in Oregon. Please reach out and support them. Really proud of the work that Shade Tree in Las Vegas, as well as Signs of Hope, is doing in Las Vegas. Um, and then Oregon Sex Workers Collective in Oregon. And the, gosh, what is Swan and Suede in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, are doing some phenomenal work. Gosh, there's a ton of organizations. The Center in Las Vegas, the Q Center in Portland, Oregon. And always, always, always the animals. Pixie Project in Oregon. Lux and I love the animals. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been such an amazing opportunity to speak with you. Yeah, I just really appreciate it. Like, I don't know. I've been sitting here just in awe and I'm so thankful. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's be friends. I'm excited. Let's keep this going. Absolutely. And yeah, we'll talk again soon. Have a really great rest of your day. Yeah, have a great day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, you too. Bye. Thanks.